On this episode of AppTalk, the 737 MAX begins recertification flights in China, U.S. airlines weigh vaccine mandates, and the law of unintended consequences hits airlines squarely in the nose. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Urbanowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm I'm doing very well. You you sound very businesslike today. Uh, sure, and I'm just tired. I guess caught in the middle between two trips and haven't been able to say that in a very, very, very long time. You've been traveling. You you returned yesterday. You're leaving tomorrow. So we, we've caught you in the, I guess, the, the interregnum of your travels. Intermission. Uh, some, the inter-something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I was in Seattle and I'm going down to lovely, extremely hot, very much too hot Virginia tomorrow. That's always fun. I always say that DC in the middle of August is where I want to be. Exactly. Yeah. Can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be except so many other places. But <laughs> except pretty much anywhere else. At least I wasn't in Seattle during one of their heat domes or heat waves. So it was a reasonable temperature there. So win some, lose some. I mean, taking what you can get is really, I think, the motto that I'm going for, especially the past we'll say 18 months now, I think. Yeah, it was good. I got a wide body on my JFK to Seattle flight. I don't think I've ever had a wide body on that particular route, which was exciting. And what wide body was it? A Boeing 767-300ER. You may have heard of it before. It rings a bell. So the 767-300ER with its impressive winglets and comfortable seating. So it's basically the the best of all possible to, I mean out, outside of flying like a Delta 1 suite or something like that. It's probably the, the best way to to get from JFK to Seattle. That's uh, uh yeah, I've had some other fun ways like delivery flights, but if you're flying commercial as a ticketed passenger, this is the way to go. And the, you were not flying, you know, as baggage, so not this time, no. <laughs> Maybe next time, who knows. Yeah. And we did some fun things in Seattle on the, the day I had free there. Uh, we actually went out to, with Jeremy and Ben Granucci from New York City Aviation, we went out to Moses Lake to watch some of the fire tanker flights come and go. And that was, that was interesting. That's always a, a sight to see. Were they doing the, re, I don't want to call it refueling, but uh, re-tankering, I guess, where, where you could see it? Yes, they were doing the, the refueling and, and re-retardant loading, I guess you would call yeah, it. Sure. Yeah. Well, some of the turns were just pumping in the retardant and going, and some of them were extended turns for fuel. But the U.S. Forest Service, I guess, has a ramp that is right next to a public accessible road. And when the aircraft come in, some of the larger ones, they come right up to the fence line. So that was extremely cool. There were a pair of super scoopers, a Q400, an MD87, a DC-10 made a brief appearance, and a Convair that is, I think, 58 years old that entered service with uh, Delta. I'm sorry, 68 years old and entered service with Delta in 1953, and it's wow. still, uh, still doing, doing work. 
Those, I mean, the conveyors really, I mean, the ones in New Zealand are actually, I think they're getting ready to finally getting ready to retire them. The, the ones that are still operating passenger services in New Zealand. Uh, well, I'll have to check the data on that, but I, I think I read that they're getting ready to, to retire those. So you've got the Q400, that sounds like Colson. You've got the MD87, that sounds like Ericsson. And then the DC10 has got to be 10 tanker. So that's a, a pretty big spread operating at Moses. Yeah. Oh, I forgot there was an Avro and a BAE146. So there was a lot of variety there. Everything uh, short of uh, the seven four, which unfortunately is no longer in service, is, is no longer. Yeah, is, is yeah. And, and back to, uh, to Moses Lake carbon. has yeah. Moses Lake has a lot of other surprises when it comes to uh, what's just hanging out in the field. Something about like a uh, hundred and fifty seven thirty seven maxes just hanging out there since they can't be delivered until uh, they're fixed or reworked or. Uh, new homes are found for them. There was an Antonabe N124. There was a PBY. There's, uh, there's a lot of stuff on the ground there. Very interesting place. That sounds like a place to a place to hang out. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to tag along next time. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. So the kind of big news story this week, as far as aviation is concerned, isn't really an aviation story at all, but a health and wellness and uh, kind of public health story. And what I'm referring to is United Airlines as well as Frontier, United's US-based employees and Frontier's all employees, that, that part is unclear to me. The, both companies are requiring that their employees be vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, goodbye. At least at United. Yeah, United, United. there is uh, no alternative frontier. They announced that it will not be mandatory, but those who do not choose to go down that path will have some sort of required testing program, though it wasn't specified the frequency of the testing or who pays for that testing. Because I'm assuming if the employee chooses to not be vaccinated, they should probably be on the hook for that testing, but that was not clarified. And I believe Amtrak even chimed in yesterday and, ha and made the same requirements as Frontier. Right. Now, this is new to the US, but several other airlines around the world have already hit this goal quite a while ago. I think Etihad had announced this, that all of their cabin crew were, were vaccinated several months ago. Cathay Pacific, I think. So I, I don't know if that's just because people did it and they can claim 100% or if they if they used a, a carrot or a stick out that way. But United is very much taking out the, the stick approach rather than the carrot. Yeah. I think the, I, I saw a slide from Cathay Pacific today. It was not just the crew, but but the entire airline is, is over 90% at this point. So everyone who works for the airline. So that, that's, I mean, great news there considering how, how terrible – a year Cathay Pacific or over a year now Cathay Pacific has had. That's some good news there. Other airlines that say they will not require vaccination by their employees, Southwest, Delta, and American Airlines at the moment. Yeah, they, they haven't said they're not going to require it. They just haven't announced any requirements up until this point. So it's not saying they won't at any point in the future. That wouldn't exactly surprise me with one of those in particular, but they just haven't announced anything. We may be in the situation where United remains the the sole airline of the U.S. majors that, that actually goes down this approach. But someone 
I don't recall who it was, raised the point that United might end up in a few months with an even more dire employee shortage than they are experiencing right now. If a sizable number of people say, I'm not doing this and and quit, that's going to make an already challenging operation even more challenging for United. But hopefully that doesn't come to be. Yeah, I think that was uh, Gavin, who, who we've had on the podcast, was mentioning it in context yes, of American American not implementing a vaccination requirement as a that was a fear of theirs, perhaps something to to think about. But not, I mean, given the the uptake rates so far for for crew, especially, I'm not sure if that's a huge concern, but it's it's certainly something to be aware of. Meanwhile, Southwest has cut its third quarter forecast based on the prevalence of the the Delta variant in the US. And they said, well, we're going to make less money because we're seeing a lot more uncertainty. We're seeing a drop in forward bookings and we're seeing an increase in close in cancellations. So, you know, things are setting aside kind of the seasonality that we're approaching where where kids are going back to school and we're starting to see a downturn in 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 leisure travel those combinations seem to say that there is certainly an impact here yeah don't know if it's there might be a correlation between these cancellations and fewer forward bookings and and the variant as delta would call it but it may also just be people traveled earlier this summer and don't have the appetite to do it again, as a lot of places still aren't, you know, completely open. There's extra hoops to jump through. Rental cars are still damn near impossible to come by, or you have to be a freaking millionaire to rent one for a day. People might just not want to put up with it, and are calling it a wrap this year. I don't know, but on my flight yesterday, SeaTac was an absolute packed facility on a Tuesday morning. So I don't know what to make of it. I mean, it could be that people are, you know, finishing up what they booked and then saying, well, af- after the summer, I'm, I'm done. Like you said, it's it's too early to tell for sure where this is coming from exactly, whether or not it's a combination of increased hesitancy because of, because of COVID. Is it just a seasonality issue? What is it? We don't know yet. But it's certainly something that if if Southwest is cutting its forecast, and I think Frontier last week said that they were expecting fewer booking along the similar line. How much can we read into that at this point? I don't know, but it's certainly something that that the airlines are wondering about and, and wondering about to the tune of millions of dollars. So if it's me, I'm a little concerned. Yeah, yeah. But only only one thing we can do is sit here and wait and see what happens. I don't like sitting around, Jason. You know that. Uh, Too bad. All right. Fine. Not sitting or not waiting, as the case may be, the 737 MAX test aircraft is finally in China, and it is flying. Began a, a flight campaign technically today, the 11th of August, in based out of Shanghai. We don't know how many flights they're planning on. We don't know specifically what they'll be doing with the aircraft, though I assume that they will be testing the MCAS system and all the changes that have been made to the the software for the MAX so that the Chinese regulators are satisfied, happy, and content to sign off and say, yes, this plane can fly in China again, and everyone at Boeing will go, (gasps) 
But yeah. we don't know how far away that is. No, it would be nice if it were uh, approved so they could get some of those Chinese airline uh, maxes out of Moses Lake because there was definitely an overwhelming majority of those uh, outnumbering any other country there. So they've got a lot of airplanes delivered and start recertifying it in China will go a long way for Boeing. Yeah, it, it's – I mean like we talked about before, it's, it's the last big regulatory hurdle for the MAX getting getting back in the air. There are some other regulators that haven't yet approved it. Russia we talked about last time. But the as far as a regulatory hurdle and a huge commercial milestone for Boeing, China really is it. So we'll, uh, the test aircraft is the 737 MAX. The 7, so N7201S is in Shanghai and, and flying and will be there for a little while yet, uh, considering they just started today. Switching gears over to, to Airbus, Qatar Airways, at the instruction of the Qatar Civil Aviation Authority, has grounded 13 of its A350s based on accelerated skin degradation underneath the paint of the aircraft. And this is something that I don't yet fully understand what's exactly is happening, but the carbon fiber skin underneath the paint layer on the aircraft is degrading faster than it is supposed to, than, than they want it to. Uh, and this has been an issue between Qatar especially and Airbus for a while now. They, they, this is something that they were talking about a few months ago and then finally it seems to have come to a head with the regulator saying, okay, you can't fly these 13 aircraft. Yeah. And EASA provided a statement that says, in quote, based on the data provided to EASA, there is no indication that the paint and the protection degradation affects to the structure of the aircraft or introduces other risks. And so EASA is not intending to take any action as state of design for this issue at this time. A little tricky wording there, but then goes on to say no other airlines have reported paint and protection damage. So basically, it's saying this is not a safety issue and we're not seeing it anywhere else. So kind of stopped short of, you know, saying Qatar is making things up, but I'm sure they're not, I hope. No, I, I, there's, there's got to be something there if they've gotten their, their regulator involved. But is it something that they're doing specifically with the aircraft? Is it how they've operated the aircraft? Is it the, the conditions in which the aircraft have operated? Is it the, the environmental factors in, in which the aircraft are operating? You know, there, there's a bunch of things that, that this could be. Is it the paint they use? You know, I, I mean, there, it could be all sorts of stuff. But yeah, Yas's statement goes a long way of saying, we don't think this is a thing until we can, you know, get into it a little bit more. So hopefully they'll, they'll figure out what's going on because you don't want your skin peeling underneath your paint. That's just never fun. No, oh, that sounds painful. It does sound painful and, and nobody wants that. Sticking with Qatar, this is an interesting one. The government of Qatar is pursuing a quest to establish its own airspace. So that gets into a an interesting discussion that takes us all the way back to kind of the the beginnings of what we were talking about, you know, a few years ago with the the blockade of Qatar by its neighbors. And so what the government is trying to do now is 
they have an agreement. The the arrangement that that is currently in place is that Bahrain oversees most of Qatar's air traffic, except the traffic that's coming into the the Doha terminal area. So the traffic that's arriving and departing from Doha is controlled by Qatari air traffic controllers. In route traffic over Qatar and outside of the, the traffic management area is controlled by controllers from Bahrain. Qatar is saying, we want to have control over our own airspace outside uh, of Bahrain. And we want to you know, work with our neighbors to develop what this space should look like, what we should be responsible for, and, and so on and so forth. Over the past few years, I think starting in 2018, all of Qatar's neighbors have basically bent against this saying, the system we have works. Why do you want to change it and add more complexity? And why is this something that needs to happen? We don't think it will benefit anybody as they're flying, as they are moving through the airspace, and we don't think it's something that we need to do. So regional working groups that have taken this up have not had any success with this process. In October, I believe, the proposal will move to to the, the general ICAO session so that they can discuss this further and, and we'll see if this goes anywhere. If it does go somewhere, it'll be very interesting to see how the airspace is apportioned and, and what Qatar becomes responsible for in the in-route airspace and as well as you know how any flight routes or anything like that change as, as a result of any changes to the airspace. Yeah, I don't think this is the last we'll be hearing of this particular proposal. I mean, I understand where Qatar's from coming from, but I also understand where everyone else is coming from. Uh, oh, yeah. sense I, I sure. think everyone's yeah. right here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is one of those weird situations where it seems that everyone is acting rationally and, and making good arguments. And it's very strange and it makes me uncomfortable because it, it happens so very rarely around here. Yeah. So I don't foresee this changing anytime soon, but we will keep an eye on it. Indeed, we shall. What do you say we take a quick break and come back and we'll talk about some things that are getting started this week? And Jason, have your smelling salts handy. Huh? We'll be right back. Welcome back. It is now time for the a thing happened and we can relate it back to something that we did so that we can say, hey, go listen to a different episode of the podcast. Today, Joby Aviation went public following its SPAC, which I still don't fully understand. And we're going to have to drag someone onto this podcast to, to explain it to us because it seems to be a thing that is happening a lot in the aviation startup space. So we'll get to that. But Joby Aviation is now public. They are listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So go back and listen to our recent episode, episode 122 with Alan Head, uh, where we explained everything you need to know about eVTOL stuff, eVTOL aircraft, challenges, regulation, everything like that. So we'll see how well Joby manages through all of that they seem to be the the ones with with the most togetherness but but we'll we'll see how that goes 
Yeah, I don't know. One of their aircraft was on on display outside the stock exchange, but it, it's only three subway stops away, but it's too dang hot out to go look at it. I'll see it another time. <laughs> That's fair enough. Let's see, what else? Today is the moment that some people have been waiting for. JetBlue is set to to launch its inaugural flight to London this evening. So by the time the podcast comes out on Friday, it will have already happened a few times. But today is the inaugural flight. And as it turns out, no one's we, – we have no idea who, who got the good seats because it seems like they didn't sell any of those. Yeah, weird. Huh. <laughs> they just so gave yes, them away. Long awaited and I, and I wish them luck, but it, it does seem like one of those situations where JetBlue saw a crowded market and said, me too. But I hope it works out. I hope it has the intended effects where fares drop. The product looks great, and I look forward to flying it one day, just when it is a less pain of the ass to fly internationally. There you go. Yeah, still, I mean, it's possible, but still not practical, at least in my mind. But but wishing them luck. Calling back to last week's very fun episode with uh, Steve Giordano, Steve has said goodbye to airplanes for a while. He's off on vacation, but the second episode of Cockpit Casual premieres this Sunday, August 15th at 8 a.m. Eastern. Do check that out. The YouTube channel is Speed Tape Films, and we will put a link to that in the show notes so that if you haven't watched it yet, you go and watch it. Still really good, and I'm really looking forward to to the second episode coming out this week. Jason, some good news. Oh. I have caught the spirit of Spirit Airlines. And it wow. sounds like they have too. Yeah. They uh, finally, it seems like they finally finished hitting the the big red behind glass button that says press to reboot airline. And they are down to just 1% of flights canceled today. Down from a peak of over 60% for several days in a row last week. Yeah. It wasn't great. No. But they're back up and running as well as Spirit can in this year, 2021. Funny side note, um, Seth Miller, who's been on the podcast before, is, is on the, the first JetBlue flight to Heathrow from JFK today. And he lives up in uh, outside of Boston. So he had a ticket booked on Spirit to go from last night from Boston, Logan, to Newark to get in early and get some work done. And he was actually not too fond of that idea, given their meltdown. And he really didn't want their flight, the flight to be canceled. And then he'd miss the inaugural. So he cashed in a, uh, a side quest, basically, and opted to take the Tailwind Seaplane flight, which leaves out of Boston Harbor and then lands in the East River, like we mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago. Um, unfortunately, due to low clouds, they weren't able to take off from the harbor in Boston, so they left as a normal departure on a runway at Logan, and then they did not beat a uh, storm front on approach to New York and ended up diverting to White Plains. So not only did they not take off from the water in Boston, they didn't land on the water in New York, and he went 0 for 2, and that's just sad. What, what I mean, the only thing that could make this more sad is if we checked the, the original Spirit flight and find out that departed and arrived on time. It did. 
Win some, lose some. Yeah, that one definitely counts as not the first. Nope. Or not, not, not the former. Poor Seth. Well, hopefully tonight's <laughs> JetBlue goes better. JetBlue inaugural goes better. If it goes worse, for some reason, I'm sure that we'll try and get Seth on the podcast for next week. But that'll be a conversation I, I don't particularly want to have. A conversation I do want to have is the one that I want to end this show with. And it's a weird one. So I learned today about some of the requirements for the first aid kits on board U.S. airlines. And, and I assume these, these requirements extend to, to most airlines because these are the type of health and safety requirements that are generally standardized across the industry. An interesting thing that is happening though is that U.S. airlines are asking for an exemption from the FAA to not carry as many packets or, or kits of smelling salts because they're depending on the number of passengers, they have to have up to a certain number of kits and each kit has to have 10 uses uh, of smelling salts as part of their kits. The smelling salts are used after somebody faints or or it helps them kind of come back to. And because of supplier issues, and also because there is only one firm approved to manufacture them in the United States, they are facing a shortage. So they are asking for an exemption to have fewer inhalants on board. The trade group, uh, Airlines for America, which is kind of the, the commercial arm uh, of the US uh, airline industry, is saying, we don't use these a lot. We think we've got enough to, to get through the end of the year, but this is something we would like to have looked at. So that's a thing I didn't think I'd be talking about this week. No. I can't wait for the first flight to be canceled due to this. And the, the little paragraph United says uh, why your flight was canceled will say due to uh, a lack of smelling salts, your flight is canceled. We apologize for the inconvenience. That will be uh, – I don't want that to happen, but that would be a fun screenshot. <laughs> that would be something. The interesting thing here is that part of this is caused by the CARES Act which helped the airlines with financing, but also classified the the smelling salts or ammonia inhalants as they're probably more properly known as new drugs, meaning that they have to be they have to have new drug applications. At least that's what the the Airlines for America kind of letter is saying. And they say that this is something that, that ICAO doesn't require anymore. We don't think we need to be doing this, uh, but because they're there, we're asking for, for an exemption to, to carry fewer of them so we don't have to cancel flights because our first aid kits are, are not stocked with the required number of these. Okay. I mean, this is just one of those things where you go, oh, okay. That's- yeah. um, uh, Today we yeah. learned. Yeah. So I wonder how often these are actually used on board. I mean, it, the A for A letter says very rarely. And I've never seen them used on board an aircraft. Not that one person's, I guess, personal observations mean much of anything, but that's just what I've seen. On that note. I got nothing. 
Anyway, that was the the weird aviation for this week's episode of AvTalk. If you like weird aviation or just anything we talk about, please, by all means, leave us a rating or a review. Oh, side note, make sure you're reviewing the right podcast when you leave us a review. I I laughed for far too long at this because I I felt bad afterwards, but a kind person gave us a, a good review or or good rating, but left a review that they were disappointed about our discussion. Uh, I posted this on Twitter and and some people said that they were also disappointed that we didn't have uh, biblical analysis as part of our aviation discussion, which is what the the reviewer was, was complaining about, that we were too sociologically focused. I have no idea what they're talking about or what podcast they were talking about, but certainly- At least it was five stars, so who cares? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what to do with that, uh, but that was a weird one. So anyway, a rating, a review, extremely helpful in helping the, the podcast find a wider audience, a larger audience, and we're certainly always looking to do that. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, contemplations- email us, podcast at fr24.com. I read every single email you send, and then I force Jason to respond to the ones that are angry at us. So he's in charge of that department. Somehow, I don't think he's been been up to date on that, but we'll see. This has been episode 124 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.